Welcome back, listeners, to Friends of Europe's regular podcast, Frankly Speaking. On this occasion, we're going to focus on peace, security and defence matters, as were discussed at our recently held summit um, on what beyond the aftermath, what will new security normal look like? The summit was opened by Ambassador Brace, who set the tone, and the event was closed in Lithuania by President Dalia Gibruskaite, President of Lithuania. We had a view from a range of contributors uh, from Europe, uh, the East and globally. We also launched our latest European security study after the war, How to Keep Europe Safe. This is authored by Paul Taylor, our senior fellow uh, in, in Friends of Europe, and provides a very good read. He will also be contributing to this podcast, setting out some of the recommendations. We look forward to your feedback and hope you enjoy this week's podcast. On the way to Vilnius Summit, I will outline uh, what are the main uh, lines of effort at, at NATO currently and also what outcomes are we looking forward to. So first of all, it's important to understand that the big adaptation for the NATO didn't start last year. It started in 2014 with the first invasion of Russia into Ukraine. So that was the, the trigger and, and uh, there have been quite a number of milestones to get where we are now. It was accelerated by the second invasion and the brutal war Russia is waging against Ukraine. Uh, so the main milestones that uh, we, you, we could have seen are the uh, new NATO military strategies that was adopted in 2019, which is now being implemented through a set of, of other documents, such as deterrence and defense concept in Euro-Atlantic area, and such as the current work strand, which is around strengthening again the deterrence and defense posture, in, in, in very practical ways, meaning new, new regional plans, so the implementation of the big strategy through the new domain plans, regional plans, uh, new force structure, command control, uh, the, the uh, ability to deploy, reinforce uh, NATO's forces uh, where, where it's needed across all domains uh, with, with uh, proper logistics support, enablement, Uh, which means also much wider role for the private sector, uh, civil society, and the whole resilience aspect of, of the defense operations. Again, NATO is the alliance for peace. So all our posture is a defensive posture. Independent Ukraine has a central role in Euro-Atlantic security. So, and it's an important statement. So that connects what we do as NATO, as a defensive alliance, which recognizes that Russia is a main threat. And that's why there is a basis to provide support for Ukraine. Article 51 of the UN Charter provides for the right of self-defense, and our work within NATO provides very clear understanding how we do that. Literally, this coordinated outside NATO. So more than 50 countries meet in what you know as Rammstein Group. And non-lethal aid... We do a lot of coordination and provision within NATO. So for Vilnius, we are preparing a new 500 million euro package for Ukraine on non-lethal aid. And it's aimed towards Ukraine not only being able and willing to continue to regain territory, to continue fighting and liberating its territory and winning this war, but also towards full interoperability of Ukraine with NATO standards, with NATO forces, 
so that it's not only equipment, but also that it's processes, procedures, uh, commands, everything, standards, everything that is there. I think if I had to sum this up in one phrase, I would say we're facing a decade of defense. And I'm not sure that everybody in Western Europe is yet really attuned to that idea. Uh, we have to prepare for the long haul. In this study, I've tried to look beyond the immediate conflict in Ukraine, which is very hard to do because we don't know how it will end and because we are also focused uh, on trying to support Ukraine uh, and enable Ukraine to prevail. But um, looking beyond, I think there are certain things that we can assert with great uh, safety. Number one is that Russia will remain uh, the biggest security threat uh, to Europe overall. There are lots of people in, 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 in democratic worlds who think that this war is a blip, is a blip on a fundamental sort of peaceful trajectory of history, that uh, there is going to be uh, going back to, to business as usual, that there is going, back, going to be back to sort of this fundamentally peaceful international order. And I think this is one assumption that we have to get rid of. And uh, like after the World War II, there was not going back to the interwar period. Likewise, uh, the new uh, international order is going to be something totally different. And uh, Paul was speaking about whole society approach. I think it's very important that whole societies get, get sort of used to the idea that this uh, for decades rather than decades, we have to be prepared for a totally different mode of existence. Uh, peace dividend is over. Uh, holiday from vacations from history are also over. And until, uh, you know, talking about Europe, until Russia undergoes uh, sort of profound transformation, fundamentally peaceful coexistence is also over. Now, why just, just Russia? I think sort of, you know, we have to um, understand the fundamental shifts which are happening in sort of in, 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 in determining the, the, the pillars of, of inter, uh, in global order. Uh, in Russia, we see ideological politics, which is, again, so something we didn't see on this continent since the end of World War II, where restoration, delusional sort of ideas of restoration of the Soviet empire and the neo-imperialist politics dictated by it is determining against all rationality, against all the uh, calculations, the, the uh, trajectory of war. So, so that's, that's one co component. But also we have the emergence and coalescence of revisionist powers such as China, Iran, and we see their sort of um, their, their symbiosis. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and the revisionist agenda that they put forward is actually it's not going to end with this war. Uh, it's going to be there in place, maybe not so virulent, but it's still going to be there. What we also see is that quite a lot of countries in the global south support revisionist ag agenda, or at least they are not inimical to it. They would like to question the post-World War II consensus and uh, put... Uh, install a, a different order which is, uh, which is somehow more amenable to, to their uh, sort of uh, immediate interests. And what we see is that kind of liberal democratic consensus over uh, development, over global order is wobbling. If, if it's not yet over, then it's certainly wobbling. It's being severely questioned. So we see that, you know, this, uh, the, the coalescence of these revisionist powers gives a sort of a history of different impetus. And the Cold War, of new Cold War, which uh, uh, Paul was speaking, is, is actually sort of it's going to be broader than, than just a line across Europe. So uh, now, uh, talking about post-war security order, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not going to speculate about the end of uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, we are fully committed and we think that only viable conclusion is, is, is Ukraine's victory. 
Uh, but uh, however, sort of it ends, uh, what's going to happen after? I think one thing is, is clear that uh, we have to have a long-term strategy um, which involves actually um, democratization of Russia and, and Belarus as, as a sort of precondition for having a peaceful uh, order and then peaceful security uh, arrangement in, in Europe. Um, it's a very long sort of uh, haul, but um, unless we raise this ambitious sort of goal, uh, we, we are going to be sort of uh, confining ourselves to uh, sort of illusions. Um, so we have to, in the immediate term, we have to prepare for uh, inevitability of a certain conflict. And the better we prepare, vis pacem parabellum, if you want peace, prepare for, for, for war. The better we are prepared for imminent conflict, uh, the less likely that it will occur. Um, and yes, the hybrid conflict is the most likely sort of uh, thing to happen in the next decade, but the, we cannot exclude a kind of long tail um, black swan type of events where sort of a small likelihood can translate into catastrophic consequences. So for that, we have to have credible deterrence. Yes, 21st century uh, war is something that we need to invest into. And again, societies have to understand that unless we invest into military superiority, uh, our sort of economic prosperity is going to be threatened in myriad of other ways. Uh, so our investment and uh, detraction from other areas, investment in military superiority in fighting 21st century war, but not forgetting that uh, uh, our opponents, such as Russia, do fight 20th century kind of ideological wars. We have to keep those both perspectives in, in, in place as well. Is, is a precondition for keeping this peace, however fragile, however sort of under the Cold War conditions. So bolstering of Eastern flank is, is a sine qua non. And uh, last but not least, uh, this uh, security order is not going to be complete without Ukraine, with its, uh, by then, NATO standard, NATO interoperable and battle-hardened army as integral part of this post-war uh, security order. First and foremost, how have we already made Europe safe, just to review kind of the first principles, and then how do we make it safer, um, with a couple of points on that front. So quickly, um, just on the what have we done, I mean, first and foremost, it just this type of conversation obviously takes us back to Article 5, which is the cornerstone of everything that happens inside the NATO alliance and is the reason that it was creative, uh, created. We obviously have reaffirmed and reinforced and continued to message the importance of Article 5, particularly since the war in Ukraine uh, broke out. Secondly, I would say the defense investment pledge that was put in place in 2014 and will in fact expire next year in 2024 has been a key part of ensuring that NATO allies are making adequate investments to keep the Euro-Atlantic uh, area safe and secure. And we will be announcing something this summer in terms of what will follow the defense investment pledge. And we'll have more to say on that uh, in the coming weeks. Third thing I would mention, particularly after February 24th of last year, NATO has significantly reinforced its eastern flank with literally tens of thousands of troops now positioned in Central and Eastern Europe to ensure that we can both both deter against any threats towards NATO territory and defend uh, against any threats against NATO territory. Thank you, Radu Aghea from Romania Civil Society. I would like to ask a broader question about our defense in Europe. 
if uh, the author thinks that it's possible to create an organization to act against the intelligence of foreign factor, to protect the European bureaucracy, to act as counterintelligence and to be a permanent body that protect EU institutions. This body hopefully could then cooperate with the five eyes, hopefully in the future. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sophie Tarimanishvili. I'm a student at VUB, and I have a question concerning uh, Russia moving its uh, nuclear arsenal to Belarus, and if it's going to divide the opinion in NATO about providing as big of a support as we're hoping to, since this creates a security dilemma, and can NATO really afford to call it a bluff? How does transition to the green energy plays in this role and in this strategy, as well as climate change that will reshape conflicts around the world? Thank you. We've seen a pattern of toxic aggression from Russia since at least 2014. And unfortunately, nothing shows at this moment that that pattern of toxic intent and aggression is not going to stop after the war. That means, I think that's an important point to make because it means how do we uh, ensure this does not happen again, right? The attack on Ukraine uh, and, and the terrible loss of life and the, and the barbaric um, acts that went with it. This, I think, is the, is the backdrop to why we're thinking so much about collective defense, right? Ensuring it doesn't happen again is about strengthening our collective defense. Um, something we haven't heard of today is the women, peace and security agenda. <laughs> so we talk about the, the, the threats of Russia, China, uh, terrorism in all its forms and cyber. Um, but... I would like to hear from you about how, in, at the summit and further beyond Vilnius, efforts uh, that we really need to, to carry on in the, in the coming years. Um, I wanted to ask a question about one of the recommendations in the study, which is on interim security arrangements for Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova. Many commentators have been making the link between the US-Israel security arrangement as a potential model for either Ukraine, Georgia or Moldova, essentially legally binding disbursements and billions for both security and defence and for the economy. Mm -hmm. Is this a model that any of the panellists would like to see for Ukraine? And if so, or if not, what are some other interim security arrangements that they would like to see come out of either the Vilnius summit or just generally before this uh, summer's discussions on Ukraine? But also in the field of security and defense, uh, we don't know what um, exactly the, the peace will look like, but what we are looking at is already how can we support uh, Ukraine in the long term also in this field. Um, secondly, um, we need to do more in uh, for our security and defense, which means internally in Europe, but also, uh, uh, as I said, more broadly. We're looking at quite a different information environment now compared to five years ago when we were preparing for 2019. It's not to say at that time disinformation was entirely new. Of course, we were really aware of foreign interference, really aware of disinformation issues. We saw what happened in US elections. We saw what happened with the Brexit vote. So these things were certainly not new to us. And perhaps they were the first elections where we really became conscious of the fact that those elections were not just about different political views and the debate between left, right, and center, but between trust in what's true and false, trust in the process, and of course, you know, as you see yourselves, this is only magnified uh, as we approach the next elections. And just last week, the European Parliament adopted its position on the Artificial Intelligence Act. Uh, again, this will be first such legislation in the world, and it will set regulation according to levels of risk, but also encourage innovation in safe environments. You know, it's, let's not talk only of threats. Of course, it presents opportunities. Don't we need something more concerted? collective and combined to make this 
a thing that we do ahead of time, plan and prepare for it, so that you know every region, every member state, etc., has something that can it can use and mobilize to uh, ensure literacy and tackle disinformation. Not for you to answer right now, but it feels like. We're talking about it. We can see the the wave coming, but I feel a sense of that we're actually rather than kind of running, doing something to protect us and prevent it. We're running. We're going to be running right into it. But if we're looking, we are really reactive today, and we work in separate fields, countering disinformation in different way. Mm. It's a combatant field. Uh, the troll factories we read about in the news in 2016, 2017, that was yesterday, and that is what we prepare for. We prepare for this information that's going to attack us, but the information landscape is totally different from 2017. I mean, so much things have happened. I mean, just look at deep fake, or you said cheap fakes, I love that as well, altogether providing cyber criminals and, and hostile actors with many, many sophistication options to do disinformation really, really quickly. I don't know, many of you probably seen the picture of Donald Trump get arrested, for example. A deep fake picture that was spread internationally in seconds. Artificial intelligence has the possibility to create this information automatically without any humans involved. But it's also the ultimate tool for discrimination. Because, as Chris said, only 52% of the internet uh, communication comes from humans. We also know that we have in the world about 7,000 languages and dialects. But we also know that only 7% of them are reflected in the internet. We know that 98% of the web pages or the information landscape and the communication are in just 12 languages. So if you think about that and you think about, for example, AI like ChatGPT that got this information from the internet, it's a pretty angular picture. And just so you know, you know ChatGPT is actually programmed in Africa and Kenya. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So uh, I, I believe that we have a base, we're building everything on that. We think that internet has everything. It doesn't. It has a picture from our perspective and the starters of internet communication. And I am a bit worried that we are keeping on doing disinformation strategies based on 2017 um, knowledge that we think are going to happen again, when artificial intelligence is going to burst through and do a lot more things in different levels, more specific, and people are tend to believe moved, moved pictures and, and film clips more than text. It's quite easy when you see a film clip out on the internet on something dramatic that you believe it. So I think we're going to see a different arena. I think it's going to go so much quicker. And artificial intelligence make its own decisions. It's not a human that makes the decision. But artificial intelligence is not biased if the creator is not biased or the content is not biased. So I'm not going to talk too, for too long. But I think we have some things we can do. I, I think we have a lot of regulations going in. That's all really good. Um, we need to increase the knowledge at, at decision-makers' level in the world. 
it's constantly the same problem when we are talking to decision makers in the European Union, in the US, and other countries, that they don't really understand the technology behind it, so I usually call them digital tourists. The system is, is built to be addictive. The platform owner build addictive systems because they want you to stay online. The longer time you are online, the more money they make. That's why you ended up at the toilet with your legs sleeping because you have been scrolling on your phone. It, it's a quite common problem, I heard. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's the challenge. It's a technical challenge that you have to think about. Or do we need to regulate the use of user data? Because that's what they're using. They're using, using my data to create content that is so addictive that I can't stop. I'm a researcher. I've been working with this for 25 years, actually. I read my first report about disinformation in 1999. And still, I'm getting stuck by my phone looking at just stuff online that I think is super interesting and really fun because it's, it's addictive. And I, I promise you, I've been to, to the US and look at the, the next coming developments of system. It's getting so much worse. <laughs> You're going to love it. So that, that's one of the problems. Uh, yeah, this is like, like opium for the people. I think it's brilliant that policymakers and industry leaders are considering the question of disinformation from the point of view of attempting to crack down at the point of production. I think there's, a, if you'll forgive me for diverting into a slightly different but very important mm -hmm. and related topic, I think the real issue is actually consumption. And we need to train ourselves and our children and our elderly relatives and our in-laws to take information more critically and not to simply believe the first thing that they see on the internet that makes them feel angry or happy or whatever. This is very difficult because the people who are designing disinformation are doing so with full knowledge of how to exploit human psychology. The majority of the people that we're talking about, ordinary people, well, we're ordinary people too. What I mean is, don't forget that, you know, nearly 60% of the world lives in poverty, if not more. In Europe, we know literacy levels are really low. Uh, there are a lot of poor people in urban centres all across Europe who do not have literacy and who don't care because they don't feel part of society. So we need to get a real and get a grip about how do you engage with that because they are the fertile ground and territory for changing habits, influencing behaviour and either shifting to the right or in shifting in different ways. And I think this is where, as private companies, I think we can help basically the different, you know, actors to try to, to do that. Um, it's also as complex as when you have offline. I mean, you were, Damandra, you were talking, you know, when you've got people, you know, in restaurants start talking. It's not easy to stop that. Well, it's also not easy to do that uh, online as well. And I mean, we saw with COVID, I mean, COVID didn't exist and suddenly there was COVID everywhere. We had to come up with 200 policies about how to fight misinformation within weeks to give you an, an idea of the size. And I mean, in terms of where misinformation is operating for us, it's mainly on search, YouTube, and also on ads. We actually demonetize a lot. We're responsible. I mean, last, last, in 2021, we demonetized 122 million pages, and we also demonetize 9.3 million advertisements per day. In many ways, you have to learn from the historical record as far as Russia is concerned. And Russia is not a typical or characteristic European country. And I think that's one of the big mistakes that was made in the past, that people don't seem to realize that well, that Russia is actually a land empire that was created through conquest and force and war 
in the mainly in the 19th century to some extent in the 18th century. And it's that element of the Soviet Union, of course, which eventually led to its its downfall. And I think the problem with Russia now is it's very much uh, a country in decline. I remember going back when I was serving there in, in the 1990s, and there was a question asked of us at the time, which was simple, but but very significant, I think, which was, what do we want to see Russia like in the future? Do we want a wealthy Russia? Do we want a middling income Russia that has some issues, but is still developing broadly in the right direction? Or do we want an impoverished Russia? And almost everybody at the time in government was in favour of us having a wealthy, successful Russia. Now, I was a a bit sceptical about that because I felt that economic development wasn't the only answer here, that it wasn't necessarily going to bring in its train um, civil society development, legal development and so on. And I think think the mistake we made back then was to see a Russia which, after all, in the 1990s was broadly moving in the right direction, Um, certainly when I was there and shortly afterwards into the mid to late 90s, you had a sort of fairly rough and ready, but a political system that included genuine choice, pluralism and so on. And indeed also um, an economy which in which private property and private ownership had, had, had been introduced and a broadly positive attitude towards cooperating with the West. But I think there were certain things that we overlooked, and I think those things are the ones that now, in retrospect, are the most telling. One was the fact that the the rule of law was never really firmly established. Um, and of course, it appears that the rule of law actually should precede democracy rather than postcede it. And what you now have in Russia, I think, is a government, a government system that is a sort of alliance between securocrats, if you like, the former KGB officers and their descendants, um, and organized crime. I think it's worth just going through what China aims for because they have announced it. So these are not uncertainties. These are, I think, probabilities, uh, including because of China's success in, in steadily moving towards them. So one is they want to be a political equal to the United States. Uh, second, they may be less successful at this, to push the United States out of their region. And this is something they share very fundamentally with Russia. I think that's probably what unites the two countries more than anything else, is trying to have the U.S. leave their neighborhood so they can do what they want to their neighbors. Uh, second, they want to be a military equal to the United States uh, and to Russia. And they are well on the way to doing that, in particular when it comes to naval power and their nuclear arsenal. Uh, third, they want to be an economic equal to the United States. I think that that is inevitable. They're already the number two economy or number one the way you count. But I think it's also worth reminding ourselves that basically for the last 500 years, China has had 20% of the world's economy. So we all remember, because this is our lifetime, when China was weaker economically. But historically, it's rising now not above its natural place. It's rising to its natural place. Uh, in the global economy, and uh, barring unforeseen events, it will stay there. And it's also executing those through the Belt and Road, through the Digital Silk Road. These are well-funded, long-term strategies. I think we can expect them to have a certain amount of success. They want to be a tech leader, and they are a tech leader. We talk in NATO about maintaining our technological edge. I would argue 
that in fact we don't have it in most cases. So um, the Australian Security Studies Institute puts out a tech tracker every year. They just put one out uh, assessing that in 47 key emerging and disruptive technologies, China is ahead in 37 of them, in some cases with a monopolistic lead. In the future, values will play an even more important role. Um, and because this aggression, this war is also about values, you know, who, which side does, where does Ukraine belong? Uh, you know, is it, does Ukraine want to share our values? Yes. Um, so I think here EU and NATO need to also sort of in the future put aside, how do I say, I mean, there are a lot of technical, technical and, and sometimes even political issues. I don't want to say that they're not important, but that have been hampering or hindering EU-NATO cooperation to this date. And I just think that once the war is over, maybe even we could start today, we need to put those, uh, not to the side, but try and overcome those and look at the big picture. And the big picture for me is that EU and NATO need to, who share common values, need to work together. And then we can work together also better on a global scale. Now then I am hearing that we have been not listened. Uh, I am very much upset because we have been not listened in 2009. We have been not listened in 2014. And even now we are not listened. We are not we are listened, but we are not heard fully. And that's a problem. From the very beginning of this war, we said that this war is against us, not only against Ukraine. From the very beginning, we said that uh, this war, if it will be not be stopped immediately on the field of the battlefield, it will go and spread further. We have been not listened. The West from the very beginning was late in reaction. It is still late in full-fledged support, and I evaluate that this war, who is dragging more than one year, is the fault of the Western countries, NATO countries, because we're not giving sufficient support to beat Russians on the ground of Ukraine, to push Russians from Ukraine territory, and that's our fault. That means that we are maybe listened, but we're not heard fully. And that's, again, I'm very much upset that after a year or two or three, it will be said again, oh, yes, probably it was better to go with larger force, with uh, faster reaction, more efficient reaction, and not allowing to destroy so much Ukrainian territories or, and even maybe split over, over the Ukrainian territory. Because the risk is, for all of us, the risk is on the eastern flank of uh, NATO, and the risk is for Moldova, the risk is for Georgia, and all around the uh, military uh, scene, uh, what we're seeing now. So from this point of view, I'm still thinking that um, uh, reflection towards the history, it's easier to be done. But to evaluate properly, appropriately what is happening now, still we're seeing not enough vision, not sufficient political courage. And if you hear sometimes the military who are talking about situation, you're hearing more realistic, more, um, let's say, worrying uh, evaluations, then you go and hearing politicians who are trying to make everything more rosy. You realize that, again, we're trying to hide ourselves from taking full responsibility what's happening on Ukraine territory.
What that means, that we allowing Russia to be aggressive, not on its own territory, not against its own people, but against the, not only Ukraine, but against the Western countries, against us. And this is uh, very worrying. And preparation of NATO summit in Vilnius, for me, it's also very worrying. Because the steps which are already in the plans and they are, will be agreed, they're already too late and not enough. Seeing the scenes of war and learning the lessons from the war, seeing how Russia is doing the war, it is very clear that our eastern uh, border is not yet fully prepared for full defense of our territory. We do not have the dome or protected our skies uh, on the eastern flank of NATO territory, not sufficiently. And all these discussions, more or less 1,000 battalion brigade, it's really irrelevant, having in mind what scale of threat we're facing from Russia and what scale of threat we, they are demonstrating in Ukraine. So that short answer to your long introduction. <laughs> I'm joking. I, can I just have one follow-up question? So you were talking about the forthcoming NATO summit and that, well, probably the plans are not uh, in place, that well, there are a lot of things which are underdone. But I want to ask you a particular, particular question related to the forthcoming uh, summit. Uh, the question related to the Ukraine's membership in NATO. How crucial is to announce a possibility for Ukraine to join NATO in uh, Vilnius summit? and what this announcement has to have inside it. Is it enough only to make a political uh, announcement that, okay, Ukraine will become NATO member at some point, or do we have to come up with very particular and clear guarantees how to ensure uh, the security of Ukraine during this particular moment, until even until the war is over? Because uh, Putin will never be interested in finishing the war if we say that Ukraine might only become a member of NATO when the war is over. So what is your take? Uh, we have the enemy uh, who knows and sees our hesitations. He knows uh, how we feel and what we intend to do. And if he sees hesitation, he will attack and use this against us. We did a mistake already in 2008, 9 then we uh, gave so-called uh, security guarantees in Bucharest and practically not gave any uh, future plans for membership for a few countries, including Ukraine. And now one of guarantors is a terrorist attacker. One of guarantors. So what kind of guarantees we can give if potentially any guarantor can become an enemy. So the only one guarantee of security, not only for Ukraine, but also for all Eastern flank and all for all NATO in reality, is full membership in NATO. That's the only thing we can give and we can protect ourselves, not only Ukraine, with the membership of Ukraine. Because today, Ukrainian's army in Europe 
is the largest one, the most efficient one, the most motivated one, and the most experienced one. In NATO and reality, only two or three countries, not in Europe, have maybe stronger and more efficient army. So what that means, that not only we need to think about Ukraine's future as the guarantor of our security, but also to think about how much we need to invest into our own defense capacities and capabilities. Because we cannot rely fully or ask all that time US or, or, or now Britain or, or other countries to protect us. It's um, after Second World War, we, we stood in this position in Europe too long and Putin knows it and Putin uses it. And he will not give us time for long-term reforms, investments, discussions. He will, if we will not ourselves make these kind of security decisions, he will make us to make these decisions faster. And that's how it's behaving. We do not have time for such kind of discussions. Ukraine already end its membership on the battleground already. They're protecting all Europe, all Europe today from this aggressor already today, every day with their blood, with their uh, suffering and destroy of their country. And we're still discussing. They will join or not, then they will join. Really, it's pathetic, pathetic to see how we, some leaders, still hesitating to be, to take responsibility really for our own security. And I'm just repeating, it's not only about Ukraine. It's mainly about our European and NATO security. For Europe, uh, we have our so-called the ring of security. A ring of security is Ukraine on the east and on the more or less south, it is Balkans. And if we think strategically about our long-term security, not only military, but also economic security, I think we need to invest into Balkans more seriously and to take them into our own uh, orbit. But now we are still split. We are not in a hurry to do this. And some of the countries still not uh, close uh, to our values and not uh, participate in, let's say, sanctions, uh, what we are trying to impose on, on Russia. And they even participate in avoidance, uh, how to go around the sanctions. So in reality, if we think strategically about Europe's security, not only military, but also economic security, Balkans are absolute priority also supposed to be. Thank you. Um, thank you, ma Madam President. I'm Uwe Mergener. I'm a former Navy captain and now writing for a German defense magazine. My question is to you, if um, your posture with a stronger defense and deterrence in Europe fails because we will have another legislation in Washington, which is fading out of Europe, how can we build up that deterrence you're claiming? Or is it that card Putin is playing right now, that by his instruments of what we had earlier, there's information, a uh, future election in the States will go to the other party. And so what are we doing? Would you accept uh, deterrence 
by uh, a nuclear deterrence by uh, UK, by the French, or what is deterrence in that case? Thank you. You know, in this situation, I'm not talking about deterrence at all. I am talking about defense. We in the stage of threat such level that we need to be prepared to defend ourselves. Deterrence didn't work. Neither nuclear, neither other, neither our posture, neither our nice rhetoric, uh, you know, nice speeches, conferences. It didn't work already. If, there, if we will be having efficient deterrence, Russia will never be able to, or thinking even to start the war. So we failed with deterrence. Now it's about defense. How much and how fast? Russia already has historic pattern how they fight the wars. The wars usually take about four or five years. In the first year, they are in-house and failing. Second year, they are putting their economy on the military uh, ground and learning from their mistake. The third year and fourth, usually they're winning. If we will be late, and if we will allow this time for them to restart and restore, we will fail. We will fail. We do not have time. We're still too relaxed. The agency, understanding of urgency, how much we need to invest into defense, in our military capacities, in our defense industry, failing, we're too late, we're too relaxed. Russia, all economy, including mentality of population, is in the framework of war. We, all of us, in, in, in the West and in NATO, more or less, except maybe on Eastern flank, we are relaxed. If you go further from uh, Baltic States and Poland towards South, nobody talks about the war. There is no war. The summer holidays. And that's a mismatch, absolute mismatch of understanding of historic time and situation we are in until we will start to think seriously about what threats are given and done by Russia today and what's going on in reality, we will be failing with our reaction all the time. And that means it's not only just failure with reaction, we're failing with protecting and investing in serious defense of all our NATO countries and European Union. And fabulously, fabulously. One year said and a half ever. before, yes, one year and a half before the U.S. elections, is it could be not sufficient at all for us because Putin probably could not give us this time, and he will make a decision. If we are failing to make a decision to be fast and more efficient, he will ask and push us to make this decision. Extremely well said. Captivating, and you've got the whole audience like nodding and completely engaged with you. And again, it goes to that point about the, 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 the it's so refreshing to stop for someone to just call it as it is. And this is, I mean, I can hear, you know, I can see people nodding their head. Last point from me, Dalia, is that you made the reference to the summit that we're already too late. Imagine you, and I hope you do get the floor, imagine you are asked to give the first five minute opening to the NATO summit. What do you want them to do? What would be the resolution you'd be asking from them? You know, I had this uh, more or less uh, 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 similar situation than Trump visited first time uh, Brussels and he wanted to dissolve NATO. And I took the floor. 
Yes, I took the floor around the table and said uh, also directly a few things. And uh, together with uh, Ruta, uh, Dutch uh, Prime Minister, we practically can say that we saved NATO at that moment. Because we knew what to say and uh, what to, how to push the button uh, for Trump's uh, psychology. Uh, already a year and a half, uh, then a war started. Uh, my uh, um, my um, Facebook um, uh, was, I, I wrote into my Facebook uh, the message that the, um, it was practically a week um, later uh, from the beginning of the war that the reaction of the West is coward and simply. Sub Supplicit, okay, but, um, coward and uh, and complicit, complicit uh, with with Putin, because there was no reaction. And I said that if we were able uh, in Yugoslavia, in other countries, to go and to put the foot on the ear and on the ground, why we are not doing this now? And because of that, we have this prolonged war, and we still will have. We have huge damages in human lives and in, in all countries' infrastructure is going and, and hard demolishing pressure. And if the war will drag uh, more and longer with split-over effect, we will be dragged into real confrontation, not only by talking and discussing, but in real military confrontation, if we will be still behaving as we're behaving now. And you know the allergy uh, with uh, allegory with the, how you take tea from your you can do it fast or you can do it slow and painful. So now we're doing slow and painful, but sooner or later, if the, we will be not able to stop the war, Putin will 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 involve and drag us anyway in a real confrontation. So you cannot avoid the war. I, I remember I think Churchill said that you 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 cannot avoid the war. Only you can have the shame of not reacting, and anyway, you will have shame and war. So now we are going towards this direction, to have the shame and the war. <clears throat> That's it, listeners, for this season. I hope it provided you with a taste of what's to come, what we need to be thinking about, and how European security is likely to shake out in the months and the years ahead. What we will do is take a short break over the summer. However, we will be recycling some of our best podcasts over the summer just to make sure you are continue to be stimulated over your summer break and we give you uh, listening food, if you like. We will return in September for our new season, so look out for it and make sure you tune in in September. Thank you for being dedicated, committed listeners. And also, don't forget, give us feedback. And if you have ideas for podcasts, please don't hesitate to email us at friendsofeurope.org. Thank you very much for listening and have a lovely summer, a peaceful summer and a healthy summer. Take care.